0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. You'll find it helpful to go to page 1007 in the Bibles in front of you or uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in your own Bible. And as we've had a couple weeks off, I want to remind us of where we are right now in the letter to the Hebrews and the background of the letter. And that is that there is a great need... Of of the Hebrews was perseverance. Uh, It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of exhortation for them to press on. And the reason why they were in need of perseverance was because they were under great pressure. And there were evidences of this pressure. And so it began to manifest itself in the lives of the Hebrews physically. If you look in chapter 12 verse 13, Or chapter 12, it says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The Bible has a great genius for seeing the physical manifestation of depression. They were depressed people and it began to manifest itself in their lives physically. And you've seen this in other people's lives and you may have experienced it yourself. That you're so overburdened that your body actually begins to react to the depression. Where you have drooping arms, or as the psalmist often prays, that God would what? Lift up his head. Because the burden of whatever it is that you're struggling with is so great that your body begins to be weighed down with it. The Bible understands that the physical is a mirror of the spiritual. And so it is with the Hebrews. Where the author even begins to talk about the physical manifestations of this depression. Or again chapter 12 verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. See, this is what can so easily happen during a time of trial, of depression or resentment sets in and a root of bitterness takes hold in your own life. And looking back at Hebrews 3, you can actually begin to see it, especially in the lives of other people. You may not be able to see it in yourself, but the moment you begin to see it in the life of someone else, whether that's through a verbal manifestation or whether through a physical manifestation, that's when you ought to pull the brother or sister aside and say, press on. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion in the wilderness, as Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95 about what happened in the Exodus. So there's an outward manifestation, but also inward turmoil that manifests itself whenever a human being is under pressure. And what the Hebrews need is endurance. Which is why in chapter 10 he writes, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. But what is it that enables Christians to persevere under such trial and tribulation? How do you run the race with perseverance? Well, what's the answer here in chapter 11? Who said it? Right, begins with F, ends in eighth. Faith, all right. all right. Faith is what enables Christians to persevere under trial and tribulation and allows us to run the race with perseverance. And so as I said before, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive What is promised? For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The way to go on living then is by faith. That we can say we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Because as I've said before, the author of Hebrews seems to tell us that there's no middle ground in the Christian walk. You're either moving forward toward the Lord Jesus or you're moving backwards. Even when you're in sort of a middle place where you feel like I'm just not progressing, what Hebrews would tell us is that actually you're probably moving backwards your heart is beginning to harden. And so the alternative to shrinking back is believing and going on. And that can easily happen when we're under pressure, can't it? We just feel crippled and we shrivel up inside and if you're anything like me, you just want it all to go away. And even begin to live life like an ostrich. Just pretend it's not there and it'll eventually go away. I mean, I've had conversations with my wife when we've had a problem and I said, can you just ignore it? (laughs) Right? Well, no, (laughs) That's, that's the answer I received. No, we cannot just ignore it because that, in fact, is not an ignoring it and moving on. That's actually an ignoring it and what? Moving back. And so we get to chapter 11 where the author of Hebrews shows us what faith is and it has been rightly called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And yet, more than just a Hall of Fame of Faith, the author of Hebrews gives us illustrations of faith working under fire. All of these people that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 are people that experienced intense stress and exhibited great perseverance. And these people were chosen for a specific reason. As Campbell Morgan said in a book about chapter 11, he entitled it, The Triumphs of Faith. This is a list or an illustration of people who have triumphed in faith. Look at these men of God. They went on when the only other alternative is to go back. And of course, the Hebrews were in danger of this. But rather than think of it as those Hebrews, again, what Hebrews is constantly trying to show us is this is not just a word for people in the first century who are Hebrew Christians, but for us as well, because we need to apply it also to ourselves. Many this morning here have experienced such spiritual tribulation that we have asked, can faith flourish in a situation like this? How can I possibly go on? it is in situations like these that faith actually flourishes this is where God creates faith he does this in the life of Abraham who gets a lot of press here in chapter 11 and who we're going to focus in on this morning and he does this in the life of Abraham and us in the context of trial so if you look at chapter 11 and verse 32 this is how he wraps it up And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. This is a really good word for long-winded preachers. What more shall I say, for time would fail me? Who through faith... Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. He's actually putting forward 17 illustrations of what faith looks like, but only gets to fleshing out 11 of them. And the characteristic of all of these individuals was faith, faith through trials. And God created in them this faith. Now Abraham is the prototype of the man of faith. He's the great biblical example. But he's not only the prototype of the man of faith. He's the progenitor of every man and woman of faith. He's both an example and a father. But before we get to Abraham, we should ask the question, what is biblical faith? Because chapter 11 does not provide us a definition of faith, but a description of faith. The Bible defines faith in this way. Faith simply means to trust, rely, or depend upon something or someone. That's what it means. And biblically speaking, this is a gift that is given to you initially by God. When you first enter into a life-saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that comes, up, comes because God implants faith in your hearts. Isn't that funny? That God actually moves in your heart before you become a Christian. He makes the initial move and you respond to him. You know, it's not as if all of us are seeking God and then we find him and we say, oh, through our own volition and because I'm such a smart person, I've chosen God. But actually God chooses you in the first instance and enables your heart to see God for who he is and you for who you are and to turn to him in repentance and faith. But when we have this faith, this faith that we have in God can be defined as to trust rely and depend because when the eyes of our hearts are opened we see that we have no other hope for rescue that jesus christ is the way the truth and the life and if god has moved in your heart i find that i'm not troubled at all when i read from john's gospel that jesus is the way the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father but through him as a christian i praise god that there is a way that's a great miracle, that God actually provides a way out of our predicament, out of our death, into life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we see that our only hope is in Jesus, we cast our entire lives upon him. So when the Old Testament talks about faith, the word that is used always means leaning upon or rolling a burden upon someone. You know, think if you're carrying a heavy load. And someone comes alongside you and you throw your pack off onto their back. How does that make you feel? Great. right? Your burden's been relieved. You've cast it upon another. And so it is that we cast not only the burden of our sin, but we rest completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us a piggyback ride the whole way. Right, We throw ourselves upon him and he carries us. That's what it means to have faith. I'm living my life completely through you, Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, when asked what is faith, responds in this way. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith is resting and receiving. And this is not just how faith works when we first come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is how the entire Christian life is lived. Not just in the initial stages, but every minute of every day. We cast upon Jesus everything. We rest upon Jesus for everything. And this is exactly what Abraham did. Chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Or chapter, in verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who has promised. Both Abraham and Sarah rested on God for their everything, for their future, for Sarah giving birth to Isaac. They took God's word with complete seriousness. When God spoke, they listened and they believed him, and it was what? Reckoned to them as righteousness. God spoke to Abraham his promises and covenanted with him when they considered When they considered God, it means that they took him at his word. Now, the perversity of the human heart is that we question whether or not what is said by others is what is meant. Have you ever had a conversation with a group of people and someone says something outlandish and when they walk away, you look at everyone else and say, did they really mean that? We even wonder, and we tend to speak in hyperbole, me especially, and Lauren will often say, Do you really mean that? Or listen to any sermon by Paul Zoll, Do you really mean that? Or worse yet, in our day and age, when it comes to texting an email, you read the text or you read the email, and you think, Now, what did they mean by that? What is their tone? What message are they trying to convey? Did they really mean it? We speak carelessly. We text and email carelessly. But Abraham and Sarah rested their entire life on God's word. For God means exactly what he says. And so when God says it, there's no room for, now did he really mean it? because that's the question that is asked by who? The enemy. Did God really say? Well these promises came to Abraham and Sarah directly from God. God spoke to him. The promises of God come equally to us from God as well but through Holy Scripture. This is where we rest our confidence. And this makes all the difference in how we live our lives. Do we take God at his word and do we believe that he really means it? It impacts our entire life. We face the same dilemma that Abraham faced in Ur. Are we really ready to take God and his word seriously? Is my thinking molded and formed by what God has written and by what God has said? Is this how my life is shaped? Is my life founded upon God's words? And this is an immensely important thing for you and me, as it was for Abraham. The authority of God's word is not simply an academic or intellectual issue but an issue of vast proportions, spiritually speaking, which determine the whole course of our lives. But Abraham rested on God's word. And we see in Abraham's faith that there were no limits to where he would go for God. Now, in Genesis 12, when God first speaks to Abraham and says, I want you to go out from Ur of the Chaldees and go to the place I have prepared for you, Abraham went, resting on God's word and God's power. So Abraham's faith produced an active obedience. We see this in tra- verse 8, chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went out to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land. And this was a real test of faith for Abraham, to leave his life in Ur behind him. Now, we might say, well, Ur, which is around modern-day Iraq today, we might look and say, well, it's kind of a cruddy little place you know, middle of the desert, they didn't even have oil back then, they didn't have combustible engines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So it really wasn't a great place, but actually a great deal of archeological work has been done in the area of Ur. And what they found were gardens and spacious homes, balconies, things like that, that actually show that Ur was a rather advanced society, at least culturally speaking. It was a pretty nice place to live. It was great. It was not as if for Abraham it was like, stay in a bad place or go to the unknown. It was, I got it pretty good right here. This is a hard place to leave. But Abraham understood that there was something more in God's call to him than economic security, social standing, and a comfortable living. God began to unsettle Abraham's heart. Abraham began to yearn, yearn for something different, something greater. God had begun to set eternity into the heart of Abraham. And that's what God does when he gets a hold of our hearts. It, it beca- they become unsettled. We're not comfortable with where we are. Not necessarily in terms of always being on the move, physically speaking, but certainly spiritually speaking. Because Abraham had been given over to God. He had consecrated his life and he repented and believed. That's really what that means, isn't it? That you're going your own way. And repentance means seeing that you're going in the wrong direction and stopping and turning in a different direction, namely the direction of God. And so he believed. Certainly Abraham counted the cost of leaving Ur. It was certainly a testing. It was no easy decision. Not only about what he was leaving behind, but also going out into the unknown. But he obeyed because he took God at his word. Abraham's life was here at a crossroad. But you know, that's the thing about the Christian life. Was this the only crossroad that Abraham ever faced? The Christian life is not just sort of one really hard crossroad and then you think, well, I'm glad I got that out of the way. The Christian life is one crossroad, one after the other. It's not a one and done. And the question is always the same. Will we listen to the Lord and take God at his word? Will we move forward or backwards and not linger? Because that's what it's like when you get to a crossroads, isn't it? In spite of GPS, we still all get lost. In fact, I think we get lost more than more with GPS because now no one has any idea where they're going. How many of you have lived in the same place for 20 years and because of GPS, you have to actually use it to get to where you want to go? In the town you live in. But when you come to a place... Uh, I, was trying to get someplace, I was trying to get to Mountain Brook High School off of 280 the other day. Impossible. Impossible. And I kept getting to these crossroads, these intersections, and I'm trying to think, now, if I go this way, what is this going to do, and, and how is this going to work? Now, what was my option just to sit there at the crossroad? I had to make a decision, didn't I? One decision would take me closer to Mountain Brook High School, and the other decision would take me where? The wrong way. And so it is for us when we get to a crossroads. We don't have the option of just simply putting it in park and waiting. We either go the way that God tells us to go or in a different way. And this is why trust and obedience are so linked together in the Bible. Because at the end of the day, and this is certainly true of me, my disobedience is almost solely due to a lack of faith. Faith says, I am ready to take God at his word and to launch out on that basis. Now, worldly wisdom would say to Abraham as he's preparing to leave Ur, stay where you are. Don't be a fool and leave this life behind, especially a life for the unknown. That's what any reasonable person would have said to Abraham. Abraham. But Eric Alexander puts Abraham's decision like this. Abraham recognized that it was better to go out into the unfamiliar with God than to stay in the familiar without him. And it always is. Abraham shows us that a life of faith is a costly thing. But a life of faith is simpler and how many of you, you don't have to show your hands, it's a rhetorical question, but how many of you, one of the prayers of your heart and one of the deepest desires that you harbor is just to have a simpler life? Life is so complicated. But do you know that a life of faith is simpler than a life of faithfulness, which gets really complicated? Now, the Bible doesn't say life is simplistic. But life gets a whole lot more complicated when we think we know better than God and live faithlessly. Because remember what happened with Abraham. Right? He made a mistake. There was a famine in the land, and so where did he go? He went to Egypt. Mistake number one. Mistake number two, he gets there and there's a crisis. And so he ignores God's word again, and he says to Sarah who's very old at this point in time, and so she must have been a real looker because he said, they're going to see you and think you're a real hot number. And, uh, and so just tell them that you're my sister. And it's a little bit of a half-truth. So it, it, you just go with it. And of course, what happened is one thing led to another and things became hugely complicated for Abraham when he was in Egypt. For the man or woman who was ready to take God at his word, trust and believe on him that he is able... As the old hymn writer said, our lives would be more simple if we took him at his word. I mean, someone once told me, they said, you know, if you never tell a lie, you'll never have to remember anything again. Now, life is not easy, but we avoid the complications that disobedience brings when we live a life of faith. Trusting, relying, and depending on God and listening to him. And Lord knows, we all know this from experience. And we do see here that in the life of Abraham, faith produces obedience. Growing in faith means knowing what it means to trust and obey God. For we have no other hope. The other way leads to great complication. So faith produces active obedience in the life of Abraham, but we also see that faith produces an eternal mindset Chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. By faith he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Well, there you have it. An eternal mindset was created in Abraham. And then he builds on it, not just in 9 and 10, but he builds on it in 13 through 16 when he writes, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see that? That when God enters into our lives, he creates a heavenly mindset in us which is a vital element in passing through trials. He creates in us a spirit that has a detachment from this world. I'm not talking about going Amish or anything like that or simply going off into the monastery which would have troubles of its own. But I'm talking about a healthy biblical detachment from the world. I I wish I could, you know, somehow do... I just want the Internet to crash for a week. Just a week. No one's allowed to look at Fox News or CNN or whatever it is that's going on, even, even the weather channel is in on it. Right now, all these apocalyptic weather shows. But when you see this stuff and you, you enter into the political climate that plagues our country right now, does it undo you? Does it make you think, we've got to do something? Well, we've got to figure this out. This is just so is just so awful. Now, that doesn't mean that that we don't pursue justice. And we don't try to love one another. But we can easily become so wrapped up in these things that we forget that this world is not our home and that we have an eye on a heavenly city. I felt really bad the other day because we were talking about uh, trophies and mom found a a box of my old trophies in in the basement. And she said, well, you need to come and get them. And I said, well, just toss them. She said, that doesn't sound like you. I said, well, toss all of them except for the state championship medal. Pull that one out. And she said, well, you really want to toss all of them? I said, one day they're all going to burn. And any trophies that I have, I'm going to lay down at the feet of Jesus Christ because they're his. Now, what allows us to be able to say those types of things? We have no abiding city. Our home is in heaven. And so it's a healthy detachment. It's not a detachment that lets us go through life not caring about our neighbor or anything like that. In fact, it makes us want to care for our neighbor. You can come hear that that sermon at 11 o'clock. But we live with an eye on heaven. The promises of this world are empty, but the promises of God are the reality. What the world is offering you, what the world is offering Abraham, is empty. What God offers us is the reality. We don't belong here. And so it really doesn't matter what the world says and does. Martin Luther, one of, uh, a mighty fortress is our God, has been translated several ways, but I think that the best one is a safe stronghold our God is still. And listen to what Luther wrote. And though they take our life, goods on our children, wife, These things vanish all. The city of God remaineth. Our true riches are in another world where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves cannot break in and destroy. The word for this is that we're pilgrims. We're like Abraham. We're like these mighty men of God where we're making our way through this world, but we're pilgrims. We're not hobos or tramps. You know, I, I always find it interesting to walk around downtown and encounter people who are homeless. They're always very colorful and have amazing stories. And often I'll encounter someone passing through and I'll buy them lunch or a cup of coffee or something and engage them in conversation. And one that I recently had was pretty funny because as he, was, uh, as he was talking to me about what was going on in his life and where he might end up, he asked me, well, where do you think I should go next? I don't know, Palm Beach, someplace like that. But see, that's just it, is that we're not tramps, we're not homeless. We're actually going somewhere. We're not aimless. A tramp wanders, a pilgrim has an eye on his city. His life is hid with Christ and God. And so as Christians, we ought to feel a sense of homelessness. If eternity has touched your soul and invaded your heart, you feel it acutely. This is why... You will never find anyone more miserable in this world than the believer who is trying to find his or her ultimate satisfaction in this world. That's the most miserable person on the face of the earth, bar none. The believer who has not set their heart on heaven will only find misery. For when grace has invaded your soul, God has spoiled spoiled you for anything less. You find as a believer that you are more yourself in these moments when you're given over to understanding who you are in Christ and where you're going. And probably the most intense that I feel it are in those moments of worship, especially with brothers and sisters, where you get so caught up in it and you feel it, don't you? You think, this is what heaven is like. This is the reality. This is what I want to live for. This is who I am and this is where I want to be. But we're done at 11.45. So we'll pick up next week. We'll finish up. I've got one little heading. Uh, uh, What more shall I say for time would fail me to tell you of my last heading? Uh, But go in peace to love and serve the Lord and understand, pilgrims, that you're on your way to heaven and that to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust and rely and depend on the Lord Jesus Christ for your all.